dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast, serving up bite-sized doses of delicious and nutritious insight and inspiration intended to ignite your mojo within and add fuel to the fire of your life, your relationships, your work, and your contribution to the world. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat, dinner is served. There we go. Hey, we are live. <laughs> we are alive. We're alive. Alive. Hey, We're alive. Hey, this is uh, Mojo, Joe McCarthy, with uh, my one of my longest term friends, Michael J. Lecky. What's up, Lecky? What's up? You can tell the link by all the gray, huh, baby? That's right. We earned this the old-fashioned way. We earned it. (laughs) Michael and I, that's right, Michael and I met, I I think we met each other in junior high, but probably started our friendship around 10th grade. What do you remember? I think you're right. Yeah, I think one of our, probably the bonding moment that really launched our friendship, which has stood the test of time, you might say, uh, was going to camp together, church camp, right? Yeah, you should tell you should tell the story because it's better for you than for me. Tell our church camp story that first day. Oh, uh, just one of those you know long, long bus rides. We get up there, and I was kind of new to the group, and um, I wasn't so sure about it. You know, I wasn't super outgoing at the time, and I wasn't so sure. And I got there, and because I've been kind of talked into going by everyone, but it was late. They, I, I on the bus trip up because going across Montana, it's a long haul. And long. we got there. You know, we're all friends, hanging out, having a great time, and feeling comfortable. But then. They're going to put me in this one like big group cabin with a hundred other kids I didn't know. And I was like, oh man, this is depressing. It just kind of sucked the life out of me. So I said, I I don't want to stay. I just want to get on a bus and go back home. And uh, I I went and talked to the youth pastor there and he said, well, let's see what we can do. And Mr. Joe McCarthy was there and he says, he goes, well, I'll I'll sleep on the floor. Take my bunk. Let's move a mattress in. We'll stuff one more in the room. I said, thank you. And uh, so, you know, you uh, you made room for me by uh, uh, laying down there on the floor uh, on a mattress for the rest of the week. And I got to uh, hang out with everybody I'd gotten to know and had a great time and started a, a long friendship. And here we are. And, you know, the reward I got for laying on the floor in the mattress is I woke up one morning with a mouthful of toothpaste because apparently I'd been snoring so loud that you guys just emptied a tube of toothpaste into my open mouth and I woke up choking with with toothpaste coming out of my mouth and I'm like what's going on like yeah just turn it turn it down there were definitely any number of immature hijinks involving toilets and fart spray and all sorts of things that happened during camp that's for certain that's right we'll save those for another broadcast right I think so (laughs) needless to say we've had uh more than our share of bonding experiences in fact uh, we went to junior high and high school together uh, we attended church together, and then we went off to college. And our first first college experience was out in Minneapolis at this very conservative, small Bible college, North Central. And and um, even though it was a fun experience and we made some really great friends, we didn't necessarily quite fit in. I guess that's one way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so neither one of us finished there and Michael went off in one direction and I took off uh, for, he actually, Michael went to Southern California and I started traveling as a trumpet player around the country and ended up touring right into Southern California and stayed overnight in the dorms at 
then was Southern California College, now Vanguard University. Uh, and Michael made room for me in his room, right? And so then I transferred in and we both graduated from there in 1989. Yes, <laughs> wow. now you're old. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we roomed together in college, we roomed together off campus. Uh, and one day we'll tell the story of the bus ride home from camp, which was an entry all into itself. For those of yeah. us, you know what we're talking about. After uh, after college, we actually Michael Michael and I rented a beach house down uh, where was it the Wedge, which is a famous surfing mm -hmm. area in Southern California, at the end of this long peninsula. So the only way in and out was this one long road, <laughs> and Michael and I became the two most popular people in the world because we had a beach place. <laughs> yeah, totally. we could we could walk to the beach. Yeah, uh, we had a lot of fun there, and then uh, life took us different directions, but. One of the things that we want to talk about today, one of the things that comes out of uh, what we're going to talk about today is that when Michael decided to go to graduate school, uh, he chose Pepperdine University's Master of Science in Organizational Development, MSOD. And I don't even know, I don't remember, why did you choose Pepperdine at that time, Mike? Oh, well, I was, I was working this job. I I'd, uh, you know got out of college with an undergrad in psychology. So, of course, I was ultimately unmarketable, um, especially during kind of the recession that was going on then. Um, and um, but I had gotten married and I went to work for the uh, Social Services Agency of Orange County, uh, which was right. just a, a soul sucking, mind numbing job. But um, I got kind of interested in how bad organizations could work. And I thought, you know what? There must be something you can do with like this psych stuff I studied and business. And so I went and I enrolled in an MBA program at Pepperdine because they had a local campus. Um, and it was there that one of my professors, uh, Dr. Miriam Lacey, uh, approached me and said, why aren't you in the MSOD? And I said, what's, what's an MSOD? And she goes, what's the program I actually came to teach in? And you are interested in consulting and, you know, change and stuff. And that's the program for you. So I then reapplied and kind of jumped through the hoops I had to go through to get accepted to the MSOD program. And that's where I uh, ended up. And then that was a bit of a life changer it took me in a different direction career wise across the country, you know, a whole a whole bunch of things. And it kind of uh, it was one of those inflection moments, uh, moments of life, most definitely. Yeah. In many ways, that has been your passport around the world as well. How many countries have you gone to as, as a direct no. result? Do you know? Jeez, I don't know. 30, maybe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, you and I uh, actually both we've both been to. 30 countries ish around the world. I've been to all 50 states. I think you've been to most, but for totally different reasons. So yeah. Mike immediately applies his OD degree and becomes a consultant and works with big firms. Uh, to some of the companies that you've worked for, Michael, just kind of name a, a few. Uh, sure, man. I started off with a company that nobody's ever heard of called Abitibi Price. Now it's Resolute Force Products, but I went to uh, Anderson and Anderson before their untimely demise. Or sorry, Arthur Anderson Anderson was also a small company. Arthur Anderson before their untimely demise with the Enron thing. I uh, worked at GE. I've worked at Bloomberg, and I spent quite a bit of time at uh, Gartner as well. Gartner, yeah, all all very notable jobs, and so his uh, his education at Pepperdine certainly paid off in a big way there. Meanwhile. Uh, I was traveling the world as a trumpet player, just doing gospel music and got to meet the Pope and Mother Teresa in my travels. Very rich experience. Um, but Michael was telling me when we would talk about his his degree program at, at uh, Pepperdine. And I was fascinated by this, mostly because he talked about the transformation that was going on inside himself. I mean, he didn't talk so much about the academics, although he said they were very high and he loved his professors. But he, he would often talk about it's, it's life changing. It's changing my mind. It's changing the way I show up in the world, all these things. I had no context for that, but I thought, 
that sounds good. You know, that sounds really interesting. I, I want to do that. And I didn't even, I wasn't a consultant. I didn't even know how I was going to apply it. I just thought if it has something to do with changing my life for the better, that's something, something I want to sign up for. So after Mike had already gone through the program, I did get accepted as well to the MSAOD program and went through it. Um, and I've worked in nonprofit organizations, primarily faith-based organizations my entire career. But the dynamics are, I think they're universal, but they're certainly similar across the board that I too have seen organizations with these great missions and people in charge with huge hearts that want to make a great impact on the world, but they just have no idea how to do it in a way that's sustainable or that's right. affirming to the people that work for them. And in fact, I was often the person that would join in because I believed in the mission only to find out that the structure and the process for working there just, again, sucked the life right out of me. Right. And yeah. I'm like, what is wrong with this? What is wrong with this picture? So I had really determined if, and when I ever get into a leadership role, I, I want to apply these principles, which really it comes down to emotional intelligence. It comes down to empathy and compassion where instead of trying to increase your bottom line just in terms of productivity and uh, and profit, you start with the people and then you end up increasing your bottom line in terms of productivity and profit as well. Because that was your experience as well? Out in the, yeah, the I, yeah, I mean, in many ways, yes. I mean, it was, you know, the the, the program was, you know, kind of founded on, as you remember, you know, sort of three things, kind of deep theoretical knowledge, practical application of it, and then what they called the human as instrument. And that's where kind of some of the self-change was, you know, doing things like what they called T groups or stuff, but, you know, so you kind of gave and received feedback and developed your own level of self-awareness. And of course, when we look at leaders or managers that are struggling to make an impact, it's usually because of something they're doing that they're just not aware of. They're lacking that self-awareness either overall or in that space. And so, you know, once you kind of start to build that self-awareness, also you start to build awareness of others, right? And, and yes, start right. to relate as, as uh, you know, one of one of our professors at the time there, um, uh, you know, and one of my academic heroes, Ed Shine, would say, you know, you, you start to um, personalize people. Not personalize, but personalize, right? See them as a whole human being as opposed to a role or a function that they play. And of course, what's funny is we've talked about that for some time, but we've seen it happen a whole lot more like in, uh, in, in agile methodologies, uh, you know, people who are unfamiliar with it will say, oh, that must be a new way of, you know, a new a new process. But and a lot of times they do it wrong. But if you look at the Agile Manifesto, it says individuals and interactions over tools and process. And that's what it's really saying is, look, it's how do we get to know each other and figure out together with the talents and the strengths and the weaknesses we bring, how to get work done and how to organize to get that work done. And that comes from knowing myself and then getting to know you. So it's actually fairly simple, but our organizations have not been set up to run that way. So hence I've, you know, been employed. <laughs> <laughs> right. And paid handsomely for, for this knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they pay well enough. Yeah. That's all right. I don't mind that. Yeah. So it's really interesting because we, we both uh, have been transformed by that experience and, and show up now in our worlds completely different than before we started into the program. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, I came about out from totally different experience, from a different mindset, from a, you know, cause I wasn't thinking of becoming a consultant. I didn't work in any big organizations. And many, in many respects, I never even had a voice at the table. I, I was never a decision maker. And even though I was brimming with ideas that I thought would be helpful, nobody necessarily wanted to hear it because I was a role. I was a title, right? And yeah. I didn't have the access to the decision makers. And so now, now as becoming self-aware and aware of this, well, now I'm even more dissatisfied in my role because I'm like, I can see it. I can see it right in front of me that there's this breakdown 
where the organization could flourish if they would just invite, not just me, but invite the entire organization or rather see it as an organism rather yeah. than organization. And then it would thrive and the people would find joy. And you hear it all the time, right? People hate the jobs they have. Only 1% of the world actually enjoys their job. And then once a person gets really dissatisfied, then they go and become an entrepreneur. <laughs> and I'm thinking, does it have to be that way? And I think you and I could both make a case. It doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. And it's and it's funny, it, you know, when it, when it started to change in places, I think, Joe, it changed because there were those handful of, of leaders who really felt that in their heart, but they were outliers. And what's been interesting is over time, the research, the results have shown that organizations that are more human like that tend to have, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, a better bottom line, better productivity, better output. Um, but it's not something you can fake either. You can't fake caring about people. You can't fake listening to people. You can't fake having empathy. You can't fake being open and, and vulnerable. You, know, you have to do it for real. And it's still hard. And most of our organizations are still perfectly set up and designed to thwart that as opposed to make it happen. It's, it's a, there's a long, long road to go. Yeah, it's, it's almost a historical structural issue, right? Where it's almost a military mentality where we're organized around lines of authority and you don't question the authority, you just do what you're told because that's really effective in war. But then you put that into a factory or a corporation or an organization or a church or anything. And if you try to operate on that level, well, you've basically killed the soul of the organization. You've drawn the humanity out of it and it just becomes a reporting thing, right? It just becomes this structural lines of authority thing, which nobody likes that unless you're in war. <laughs> yeah, or, or unless you're the general, right? Um, <laughs> but right. I mean, one, yeah. of the, one of the things that I think has happened is that, you know, the model worked well militarily, although interestingly, the military has done some amazing things of walking away from what military was known for and how they operate and work. I mean, some of Stan McChrystal's work with Team of Teams, I mean, illustrates that beautifully. But um, the, the, um, the kind of that command and control structure actually worked pretty effectively when the problems we were solving were relatively stable, when barriers to entry were relatively high in a world that the technology was industrial technology. Information technology world, not so much, because then all of a sudden the cost of the barriers to entry were lower. The technology was bringing together things that couldn't be connected before and creating new revenue streams and new business models. And those organizations that were like, we'll make the decisions up here, We'll tell you guys how, what to do and they'll make sure everybody else does it. That model just is too slow anymore for most industries to cope. And so, you know, people are saying, well, what do we do? And they've tried just doing it harder and faster and that doesn't work. And and the organizations have said, you know what, we need to, uh, as a friend of mine says, you know, lose control to gain engagement. You know, we need to let go of some of the control so people can make the decisions and we trust them to do it. It's not just follow my direction. But they have to teach them how to do that. They have to give them the psychological safety and freedom to do that. There's so many things that have to happen to move from, you know, where we've been to where we kind of now know we need to go. Uh, and there's a lot of things that get in the way, both the history and the fact that sometimes that change, especially for the, you know, the generals and the, and the top commanders in the organization, it means starting with their change first. And that's hard because they've been used to everybody else changing and they doing the, the directing of that change. It, it's it's made it really, really challenging for organizations to shift and change and become what they could be, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, that was one of the nuggets that I took out of the MSOD program was that just by showing up and being with a leader who had any inkling of open-mindedness to the fact that they might 
be the problem, right? That, that yeah. by, just by showing up and being in the room, this is called contact theory, or you could call it whatever you want, but by just by showing up, even if I don't have the answers, it creates a space for someone to become more aware of, hey, you know what, the problem isn't them, <laughs> the problem's me, and take ownership of that. But it, like you said, it takes a very secure, a very courageous, a very self-aware leader to be able to release the command and control because of all the fears that they have that somehow things are going to fall apart if I just just do what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then that's that's I think one of the the pieces of genius behind the Pepperdine MSOD program was recognizing that. And I, I used the, the term earlier, the self as instrument, but it was a pretty simple concept. It's like if I haven't done the work myself to really see me and all the stuff about me that's not so great that I need to fix and that is not working so well. And if I've just kind of blinded myself to that through, you know, through ego or, or survival, um, I'm going to exacerbate that problem in my clients, not help it. And so, you know, going through, some of those conversations were, were painful, you know, I mean, getting yeah. confronted by people with how they actually saw you, how you were coming across the things that you didn't know that you were saying and doing or, or ways you were being perceived. But you had to go through that in order to be able to help someone. And I think that, you know, for a lot of our leaders, that's where they're at now. They're finding themselves having to be the more, you know, vulnerable, vulnerable person in the room. And that's difficult. I, you know, was, we'll probably talk about, I've got a book coming out in July. And um, yeah, one Tell of me the stories that. I, yeah, one of the, it's called The Heart of Transformation, uh, Build the Human Capabilities that Change Organizations for Good. And so it's about this very kind of stuff. And one of the stories I tell is about, um, a guy named uh, J.P. Courtois, who is you know, kind of the number two at Microsoft. He's the, basically the head of you know all the sales everywhere across the globe. A really accomplished guy. He's done some amazing stuff. You know, built foundations. You know, by all accounts, just a wonderful guy. But you know, fairly, I think you know, keeps to himself. You know, not boisterous or over loud or exuberant. But um, Microsoft started taking on being more, as they called it, coach-like and worked with a friend of mine, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Uh, and we did some work with them as well about, look, how do we get more curious and more open as opposed to you know, command and control? And so one of the things they did is that their big conference, Microsoft Ready, they have a couple of days, it's just their people. So you've got like three or 4,000 of their top salespeople from around the globe in a room. And JP volunteered to be coached by Michael in front of the, uh, on the stage. And it wasn't staged. They hadn't planned it. Um, and Michael pressed. And at one point he, he said, you know, he asked a question and, and JP gave an answer. It was kind of a, a kind of an up here level answer, you know, one we might all give because it was kind of an uncomfortable question. And, and there was this pause and Michael goes, okay, hold on. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do that again. And everybody laughed because there's kind of a little bit of tension in the room. And then JP's right. like, yeah, okay. And then he, he kind of went deeper and he went deep and people were amazed to see this guy who is a very, you know, powerful person who doesn't need to do anything more really dig deep into looking inside of him for things that weren't quite working as well that he needed to address. But it was a brilliant move because across that room, everyone was like, wait a minute, if he cannot know, if he can be wrong, if he can be unsure, if he can be unfinished, if he can be slightly broken, well, then so can I, because they're not dragging him off the stage for being that way. And so I thought it was a, a, a brilliant move of bravery and courage on his part just to open the kimono and say what was on his heart in front of an audience of several thousand people um, who all worked 
under him, you know? So it's that type of leadership that we're missing a lot in the world, but there are people that are stepping up into that and really embracing that role. And, and they're having huge impacts. And you look at a company like Microsoft, I mean, arguably they're one of the companies that successfully completely reinvented themselves, you know, in our modern era and have changed tremendously how they do things. They're still working on a lot, um, but you know they've they've done a tremendous amount with their culture and they're still working hard at it um, because they have leaders who are willing to take the plunge. I think. Yeah. So you and I have learned from some of the same gurus, and then we've learned from quite a few different gurus as well. But one of the epiphany moments for me in the MSOD program is I had just a few moments alone with Peter Block. And for those of you that don't know Peter Bluck, he's like a rock star in organizational development. He just knows how to say things in a way that is strike you at your heart, but you don't feel defensive. You feel like open and you want to change, right? He's just an amazing man. So he's sitting next to me at lunch one day, just off the cuff. He says, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work for a church and, and I'm involved with you know this and that and the other thing. He says, oh, the church. He says, the one thing the church got right that everybody else gets wrong is music. They kept the music. and And at the time... I'm a music minister. I'm a musician. I'm like, yeah, music, cool. And I, I only caught it on a really surface level. I had no idea what he really meant. Now I fast forward all these years and I realize, and this is really becoming uh, super important to me. And I can't wait to share this message with the world, but that we all know how important it is and how detrimental it is to schools that they've cut up the music programs, music and the arts. Every time they cut that from a program, the kids suffer, but that's mm-hmm. the first thing to go when the budget gets tight. And there's, Endless talks, endless research about that. But very few people are talking about how that same effect happens at an organizational level for adults. And so we see people who they go to work and they drudge through their day and punch the clock and get a paycheck so they can go home and do what they really love. They can do music or art or a hobby or whatever that is. And they're alive and they're full of energy and creativity, innovation. And then they go back to work and they shrink. And they become really small and then they go home and they're alive again. Right. And it's not even, it doesn't even seem like it's the same person, but there's a few organizations that understand that dynamic. And I heard Simon Sinek talk about, he met this guy, Noah at uh, like, like at uh, four seasons or something. And, and Noah's just an entry level person, but he's full of life and happiness. Well, how, what can I do to serve you? And it's very genuine. And Simon says, what, why do you, why do you act that way? It's, I mean, I don't get this very often. He says, "He says, well, it, sir, at any time during the day, any manager from any department could stop me along the way and say, no, is there anything that you need to succeed? What can I do to help you be the best you you can be? So, so Noah's like, so I'm just flourishing. You know, I love working here and I don't get paid that much, but I don't care. And then, then Simon finds out that Noah also works at Caesar's Palace across the road. And at Caesar's Palace, sucks the life out of him. He hates being there and he doesn't even show up at all other than just get his, collect his paycheck, but he can't wait to go to work across the street. And Noah's like, this is the key to me and maybe to you as well. This is the key to organizational development. Either you create Noah's like at four seasons or you create Noah's at Caesar's palette. It's the same guy. The only difference is the organization itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Organization and the, and the way it's led and the environment you create and, you know, understanding that, and, you know, not every organization can be everything to all people. And that that's OK. Um, they're different and they're in different industries. But, yeah, the um, the idea that you can, you know, I mean, I, I love I love hiring nowadays because the war for talent's a big discussion. Yet what do we do? We still. Well, let's see. We need a, a, a bloody blah level six. There must be a blank. There must be. Oh, this company had one once. Let me get that off Google. 
uh, change the names, post it out there, and we'll get the best people. You even know what the hell you're hiring for, and you put out this list of all these different things, and but yet, yet you have no idea who that person is, and they have no idea who you are, and you know you take a chance. I mean, I've seen that happen from you know first time out the gate employees to literally a conversation anything with a senior executive making well into seven figures working working for a fortune 50 company at sea level and he gets there and after a period of time all of a sudden it's like oh oh so that's how that guy thinks and works oh geez i wish i'd known that before i you know moved my family and changed everything for this but we we, we tend to not treat people as human beings we treat them as roles and that just doesn't work and and the more we do that the more that we just kind of become disenfranchised from each other. And therefore when something changes and it's fine, it's fine if it's designed that way and everything stays the same, but nothing stays the same. It changes quickly. You know, a customer need comes up, something happens on the floor at Caesar, something happens and you have to figure out how to respond. And if you've been taught stay in your swim lane, do your thing or else you're going to get in trouble and you're not a human being, you're just a role. And you're just going to ignore that and let it become a problem that festers and grows because Dealing with it is more of a problem than not dealing with it. They've trained you not to actually address it. Whereas over at Four Seasons, and I've stayed at Four Seasons before, something happens, they just get it done. They figure it out. What do we need to do? I'm empowered to do that. I take care of this. What do I need? They go from there. And so you can create incredibly different environments, almost the exact same organization, at least what they do and yeah. what they structured. Absolutely. So let's make this a little more personal. And you don't have to name any names or organizations, but I know from our conversations that that's, that's been your own experience where – you got hired to a great position, maybe you made a big move in your career. It seemed like a really promising thing, but then after a few months, uh, the reality sets in. So kind of paint that picture without putting throwing anybody under the bus. Yeah, I don't want to get sued. I signed that paper. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, kind of what happens in those scenarios, I mean, for me, and, and you know, part of I must admit, part of it is, is, is my fault because I... I liked being brought in to be the guy to change things. It sounded sexy. It sounded cool. Made me sound really cool. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's very little you can change other than yourself. And now you do that, and you can role model that for other people. You can show them it's useful. You can help them as they figure out what they want to change. But you can't change them. Um, but yeah, I've had that experience, and, and it's the problem with an organization that. You know, my my uh, uh, classmate from the MSOD program then was a he was a classmate, became a friend, became a mentor, and eventually became my boss. A guy named Jean Claude Cassavant um, said to me once, he said, "Never get married to an organization." And I thought, "Geez, that sounds so disloyal." I don't like that. He goes, "No, no, you misunderstand me." He goes, "You get married." He goes, "You're married." I said, "I'm married." He goes, "So you married your wife?" He goes, "She's going to be your wife for as long as you're married. Now you'll both change and grow, but you know it's still the same person you're working with." He said, you come to an organization, you say, I love this organization. It's great. You're going to wake up the next day and it's all different people and they have no relationship to you, but you're still fitting this, this loyalty and you need to give them what you think they're due and they have, they have no interest in you. And he said, so you have to also kind of take care of yourself. But, you know, I would, I would go in and think this is the organization. I'm jumping into this marriage, this organization, we're going to do great. And then things would shift. People would leave. People would come in that have their own agendas. And it wasn't what you expected at all. Um, but that's not something that you're allowed to talk about or you're made to feel comfortable talking about. You know, the new person comes in, it's like, well, I'm the new person, but I'm still boss man or boss lady. And so it's no different. I, honestly, I think that at that point when the new boss comes in, 
They should have to go through and everyone should have to interview with them and decide if they want the job. And if not, it should be mandatory that they get a really fat severance and let them go. Um, because that might not be the person to work for. Also, it would tell people who put that person in charge a lot about them if everybody decided they didn't want to work for them. But, you know, you don't have that. And so organizations change and shift like that. And it's it's one of the reasons that I, I struggle. I, I was writing something recently and I, I said, look, organizations don't exist. People exist. And individuals, a collection of them with similar shared values and purpose, can work together in a group and accomplish something. But the organization itself is only those individuals. You know, maybe it's a building, maybe it's a logo, but you can't change or fix an organization. You can only work with individual people and individuals within groups. And we tend to miss that. And so we look at it on a spreadsheet, we look at it on a, a PowerPoint, and we say, this is an organization, let's shuffle these things around. That looks better completely ignorant of all the systemic impact on every human being in those boxes that we don't know. Yeah. Wow. That's really good. You know, as you were talking about this, we've all heard, most of us have heard, you know, get the right people on the bus. And then some people even take it to the next level where, well, not just get them on the bus, but put them in the right seat on the bus, you know, so they'll be fulfilled. But what's often left out was the bus driver makes a big difference, right? Because if the bus driver is yelling at you all the time, telling you to sit down and close the windows and shut up. That's a much different bus ride than if it's the bus driver's like, it's a party. It's, it's, the, it's the bus ride to camp and we're throwing shaving cream at each other and we, the popcorn's flying and nobody's in danger. We're not going to run off the road unless, of course, the youth pastor falls asleep at the wheel, but that's a whole other story. But <laughs> but I think, I think what gets missed in the bus analogy is that if the bus driver isn't aware of the environment, the culture that he's creating for that bus itself, well, it's going to change the experience for the people on the bus, no matter even if they're right in the right seat and even if they're on the right bus. I agree. And I think I think what else it missed, and uh, maybe, maybe uh, it was uh, probably Jim Collins was writing that, maybe he didn't miss it, maybe he got it and it just didn't come across to me, but it almost sounds like get the right people and put them in the right seats. Like you select these people and put them in those seats. It's like, no, no, no. You talk to people and say, how are you right for this bus and what seat are you best in? Let's have that conversation, decide together, do you get on and where do you sit? And where, when can you move and how do you move? And it becomes a conversation as opposed to something that we do unilaterally to someone else. Because, you know, the moment we, we make that choice, then the circumstances around us change. You know, it's like, well, I got to sit, I'm sitting you here because you're afraid of the sun. I'm here a vampire and I'm sitting you there because you just, you know, have to flourish in it. And then the bus turns a corner and everything's screwed up because the sun's coming to their side. You know, it's a ridiculous analogy, but that's what happens. Everything can use to shift and change. And we don't accommodate for that. And we don't let people figure out where they belong best by talking to each other and saying, you know what, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm real little and you've got a lot of extra seat there. You know, probably it's better if I go over and sit there, right? And oh, Joe, I don't see you anymore. Hmm, I think I kicked him right off the bus there. So hopefully, for those of you who are still watching, Joe's going to come back on. It sounds like here. Looks like he must have had a an issue with his uh, his broadband, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, lost my connection. I just got the text through. So now this is where you get to see me vamp. I'll have to ask myself some questions and answer them while we wait for Joe McCarthy to join us again. Oh, there he is. I was about to ask myself questions. You saved me from it. <laughs> I'm sure whatever you said was absolutely brilliant. I'll review it later. <laughs> yeah, it did involve yeah. you wearing a tutu though and a pumpkin on your head, so you're committed now. Oh, I thought we were going to leave that story out. Shoot. Yeah, it's got to happen. <laughs> hey, uh, 
So, Michael, I, I want us to continue to have these conversations as often as time will allow. And I know you're in the middle of a move across the country. Um, but tell us a little bit more about this book, when it's coming out. And yeah. if you were just to summarize it, give us the Cliff's version, Cliff's Notes version of uh, The Heart of Transformation. Sure, sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, it comes out um, July 3rd in the UK and the rest of the world, and then July 27th in North America, so US, Canada, um, on Kogan Page. Um, you can pre order now, Amazon.com. Um, so, in essence, where it came from, Joe, is this. I've been involved since day one in the MSOD. We went back to, for me, MSOD was <clears throat> 94 to 97, I think, 98. Wow. You know, I mean, it was it was you know, late 90s. But I was involved in, I was interested in change and culture even back then. And over the years, especially I moved into roles like the one at Gartner, where we were doing a lot of advisory work for mostly chief information officers at the time. Now, the business has grown tremendously at Gartner. But we're talking to all these leaders and they were trying to change things. And you know what? The technology actually was never the problem. The technology showed up or it showed up sooner than later and they got the technology they wanted, but it was always human issues, interpersonal issues, people issues that they were struggling with. And so then you start to see that noted in the literature or noted in the consulting firms. But it was one of those things like, hey, we're going to come in and sell you a big consulting project. We're going to implement this big system. We're going to implement all these business process, these things. And uh, change the culture. What? Well, you ch ch change the you get the, the culture thing. You know, do the culture, culture thing. Okay, what's that mean? So they said, now we got to get more specific. They're not buying that. You need to be an inspiring leader. You need to be thoughtful. You need to be humble. You need to be caring. You need to be direct. You need to be confident. You need to be prudent. You need to take risks. You need to not be an idiot. So they give you all these things. And it's like, and how do I do that? I mean, it, it reminds me of my first and last time scuba diving. Uh, I was in Turks and Caicos uh, with my wife, with two little kids with us. And we took the scuba diving class. And I went down to the water and this to get down to a level and kind of stay there and you can use some things to adjust. And I just kept, I couldn't get it right. And I kept going up and down. And finally the woman gives me this angry thumbs up and we rise to the surface. She goes, you have to stay level. I said, oh, okay, how do I do it? She goes, just do it. <laughs> just do it. Oh, okay. That's what Mikey would say. Just I'll do just it. level. Oh, here I am. But that's what we've been telling people forever. Just be these things, do these things. They don't know how to do it. So my frustration with that is kind of what led to the book. And so the, the premise is, is pretty simple. I think that if you want to change beliefs, which are kind of the foundation of a culture, you have to change behaviors first. Beliefs don't lead behavior change. Behavior change leads belief change because nobody wow. changes beliefs because you tell them to. You know, I mean, right. you know, try, try a, you know, I mean, if someone you, you work in a, in a, a Christian university, have someone who is um, Muslim come in and say, look, everyone now today, it's, it's Islam. They're going to say, well, heck yeah, that sounds good. You know, no one's going to yeah. do it. They have a set of beliefs that they believe theirs is the right belief. So we start with behaviors. And the simplest behaviors that you can change are questions you ask. And so if you ask a question that you normally wouldn't ask, and that question challenges your assumptions and the assumptions of others, or even reveals those assumptions, that's when you can start to say, wait a minute, this is what I actually assume to be true. Is that, is this... Is this actually showing that to be true? Are there some cracks in that? You can start examining it. And that's how you can actually start to shift and change your own beliefs. So if you get enough people doing that, then you can shift and change a culture. So the book, I talk about six capabilities. Um, uh, uh, exploring before executing, uh, learning before knowing, pathfinding before path following, humanizing before organizing, changing before protecting, and innovating before replicating. And so changing, innovating, all that kind of stuff, sure, makes great sense. People love it. 
But the what I do with the book is teach them how to operationalize it with a handful, five questions for each of those to ask yourself and ask others and how those questions can challenge the assumptions you have that you've operated under that have been very successful for so long that now are not so successful and maybe start to change. So that's that's my my dream for the, the book is that it will have practical impact in people's lives that they can start to actually make change by just asking some different questions. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I, I see this now surfacing on videos that I'm watching on YouTube and TEDx and all this kind of stuff where whether it's John Maxwell or it's Simon Sinek or it's even Brene Brown talking about it all starts with me and it is a question, do I show up in the world and can I be honest about that and be vulnerable? Yeah. So that, that's the Brene Brown thing is she didn't expect to be a guru in vulnerability. She was wrestling it with herself. But as she's realizing that that's really a superpower, that that transforms the entire organization when each person is willing to show up and be vulnerable, not just about their strengths, which we all are happy to brag about, but about their weaknesses. And then to take that to another level, and this is this is my stuff, not Michael's, but I, I would, I'd like to hear what he has to say. Um, I was even challenged recently with a guy who said, so Joe, we all kind of would say that the two things we're searching for in life is to love and to be loved. At, at the bottom line, all of us have a need for that, a desire for that. And he said, but for a lot of us as leaders or as men or as whatever we are in the culture, we think that to be loved, we have to first be perfect. We got to get our act together. We got to put on the shield and the armor, as Brene Brown would say. What turns out, that actually repels people because yep. they can't get through. They can't connect with you. And so my friend was saying that he got challenged that where humans really connect, where relationship happens, is at the point of weakness. Because yeah. when you show your weakness, then I care. I actually, I want to help you. I want to be, I can relate to you, right? All these things. And so it's counterintuitive because our ego is so fragile and so sensitive and we're afraid. What's people going to think about me if they really knew me? Well, the yeah. truth is, if we're not who ourselves are, then we're always afraid that they're going to find out and then they're not yeah. going to like us. Right? So there's no good answer there. Do you see that in organizations as well, leadership? Totally, totally. In fact, um, you know, I think, as you know, um, it's oftentimes it's strange. It's funny. Little parts of movies will lodge in my head as kind of, you know, great truths. And one of my favorites is from the movie... Um, almost famous, uh, written by Cameron Crowe, you know, kind of the story of him when he's first writing for Rolling Stone. But he calls up one night and there's the, uh, I think it was Philip Seymour Hoffman plays uh, Lester Bangs, who was a, a famous, you know, rock critic. And he calls him up and he's talking, he goes, I'm glad you're home. He goes, of course I'm home, I'm uncool. You know, we're not cool. He goes, but don't worry. He goes, the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what two people say to each other when they're uncool. And I just love that, you know, it stuck wow. with me because when you try and be cool, you do, you lock people out and when you just, open it up. And as, as you know, Brene has said so eloquently, what feels like weakness and, and, and risk to you to open up and be vulnerable looks like strength to everybody else who sees it. Wow. Um, yeah. And it really is. You have to be okay and say, I'm not going to disappear if I show you the uncool side of me. And I see that in organizations because I mean, we talk so much now about creating psychological safety. Well, you want to create psychological safety Show people you're uncool, show people you don't know, show people you still have to learn, show people you don't have all the answers, show people you need help, then it makes it okay for them to do that. But we kind of say, you know, we're going to stand up here godlike, at least pretend we are, and expect all of you to change and do these different things. No one's going to do that unless you do it first. So you have to kind of embrace that that uncool and that openness. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same in in, in my, my marriage. I've been married, you know, you know Molly, I've been married to her for nearly 30 years, you know, I guess. I was there. I was there on that day. He did, he did the ceremony. That's right. And um, 
But, you know, I mean, one of the things that's made our, our marriage really work is, I mean, she just knows who I am. She knows all the, the you know, the bad, stupid, obnoxious, arrogant, egotistical parts. And I, I, I try and improve them, but I don't try and hide them from her. Um, and as a result, you know, we have a really deep, close relationship. And I think it's that way with any relationship. Um, and, and if we don't think that organizations are about relationships, <laughs> you know, that's when I feel confident in saying you're just dead wrong. It's all yep. about relationships, but yet we pretend it's not. We're professionals. We're at work. No, you're not. You're a human being and you're trying to hide your humanity to fit into a role and it's just not working. Right. Yeah. Causes so many problems, right? This is where this is where the, the divisions that are tearing at the fabric of our society are because we've got to prove that we're right, that we have the right mindset, we have the right attitude, that we come from whatever. And we, we start at where I'm right and you're wrong. Or, and like you said, you're not going to convince anybody else that their beliefs are wrong. So if you start from that position, we're dead from day one, from the moment you yeah. start the discussion, right? Yeah, we started our differences as opposed to our, our similarities, our shared humanity. I mean, you know, you and, you and I have taken, you know, different roads in life. I mean, and you're, you're, you're still church involved. I am not, you know. I mean, I'm sure there's different things about us that, you know, things that, are, you know, are important to me or less important to you. And I've had that with other relationships. I had a, a friend of mine that I worked with at Gartner, Jim. I love him. Jim, if you're watching, you're a Jim Hawker. You're a great man. And, and he and I were very different, um, you know, different politically, different, uh, you know, uh, religious wise, um, you know, uh, different in, in so many different ways. But we, well, I love the guy and he's smart and I respect him. And the things that were important to us around helping others and being equipped to help them, that's what drew us together. And the rest of that just really didn't matter so much. But most times we get into a place where it does, we have to identify with something like that to feel like we're, you know, we're fitting into something else and we're safe. And it's, there's nothing more dangerous than staying safe, you know? <laughs> it just kills you. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, there's so much we could talk about and we'll, we'll continue at another time. But I even think about sure. labels. When, when people show up in an organization and they have to wear a name tag and your job is XYZ, entry level, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It, 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 it shrinks the person way down to a tiny bit of what they're really all about. And so you, you've taken out any of their hobbies and ideas and creativity and strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and you just want them to be this little teeny tiny role, which yeah. no human could fit into anyway. Yeah. So already the design of that is wrong. It's, it's constrictive and it's counterproductive. Um, and also I wanted to say that there's this, wonderful book um, called The Third Option, written by a guy down in San Diego. He was a San Diego charger for a while, and now he's a, a pastor. But he's talking about racial division, and he said, if, if we start the conversation with what we have different, we're dead in the water, just like we talked about. Yeah. He said, so let's start the conversation with what we have in common, just like Michael just said. We're humans. We have red blood flowing through our veins. We're breathing the same air. We're, we're using the same resources, natural resources, which we all need to preserve for ourselves and our next generation. And maybe the color of my skin is different, or maybe I'm disabled, or maybe I, I believe differently than you do, but we're humans made in the image of God. We're, we have so much in common. Let's start there. And then it changes the dynamics completely. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think also acknowledging the things that, I mean, you know, for me, one of the things that I have to do, and I've done it a lot more lately in working with people, especially I'm working around issues around, you know, diversity and equity, inclusion, things like that, is say, so... Um, Mea culpa, I'm a straight, white, cisgendered, middle-aged male. Um, and so there's a whole lot I don't get. 
<laughs> there's a whole I understand. There's a whole lot I haven't had to go through because of that. Despite that, how can I help? And what do I need yeah. to know? What do I need to learn? And, you know, I had a, I had a conversation recently with a, a senior leader in an organization, and we were talking about um, a hire that they were looking at. And they were looking at two hires, both for, for sales positions, both female. And um, this CEO, they're, they're, uh, they didn't say, let me decide. They just gave their feedback after they talked to both of them. And what the feedback was is, well, he thought this one was a little less, little less polished, a little less polished than the other one. But people heard that, and they kind of wanted the other one, but they heard that. They didn't feel like they could actually hire the person he was saying was less polished, so they made the other hire. They hired the white girl and not the black girl, or white woman and not the black woman, I should say. Um, and so we had this conversation, and we started talking about unconscious bias. Said, well, there's no bias there. This one is professional. I said, okay, so I just want to share a little factoid with you, and that's this. And we have a trusting relationship. We can have the relation. I have this conversation. I said, not polished is probably the number one phrase used by white males to describe black females and black males who are applying for a job that they don't favor. Mm. Ouch. And he looked at me and he just kind of looks down. Right. He's like, and he said a few curse words under his breath. <laughs> sure. And he looked up and he was just, just, he was, he was sad. And he said, he goes, I guess that's why they call it unconscious bias. Cause I just don't know I'm biased. And I said, yeah, he goes, what do we do? I said, the first step is awareness. You get aware and then you align on what you're trying to go for and you ask help to get there and know that inflection points like decisions around hiring are where we're, we're stressed. We need to make a decision. It's important to us. We need the right people. And so we go on these gut things that we don't realize are gut prejudices because this person would never, I don't think they ever said a mean thing about a per, anyone in their life. And no one in that organization believes they would ever be purposefully prejudiced against anyone but they were unconsciously so. And, you know, it's it's that thing that so many of us now who are still to this day have most of the power and need to really recognize. It's another great reason for self-awareness because we are robbing ourselves of the diversity of thought that actually could change our organizations completely by having this, you know, homogenous group that we pick just because we're comfortable and aren't doing the hard work to look at our own prejudices, you know? Um, so wow. yeah, it's, it's an wow. interesting time though. It's an interesting time when the world is things are changing and the opportunity is there. And I do believe that more and more people who have been able to survive not making changes are going to get left behind in the very near future for what it's worth. Yeah. Oh, that is, that's good stuff, man. That's good stuff to think about. For my own self as well, and oh no problem. I was going to say too that um, it's pretty clear in most of the stuff that I'm reading, and I think your book even confirms this that change doesn't happen on an organizational level. Change happens on an individual level, right? Like yeah. you said, I, I can't change you. I can't change everybody. I can't change the organization. I can shuffle the, the pieces around, but it doesn't change the heart of the organization, which is to your book the heart of transformation. Yeah. It's, it's not the structure of transformation. It's the heart of transformation. I'm sure that was chosen intentionally. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely was, Joe. You're right. And, you know, and, and change is individual. Absolutely. It, it happens in groups. No doubt about that. And the group can impact your freedom to change or your, your, or, your, or, your, or it can thwart that. But the change in the organization is as a result of the individual changes that happen within groups. Um, you can't just have to change an organization, though. So if you say, you know what? We've got the new vision and values. Let's hire an agency. Sorry, agencies out there. Let's hire an agency for 200 grand to 
you give it colors and marketing materials and screensavers and all sorts of stuff. And everyone will say, oh, yeah, awesome. I love that. And they'll go back to exactly what they're doing. But they'll just put a new sheen of the new the new terms of the day over the top of it. I mean, I, I have seen I've seen values, you know, weaponized to mean exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to mean. <laughs> you know, right. and one, yep. you know, like, a, hey, we're, you know, one of our things is we are going to be, you know, open to change. Great. Open to change. What's that mean? That means if I tell you something different, you don't do it. You're not open to change and your ass is out of here. Oh, okay, great. Well, that, right. I'm not sure that's what it's supposed to mean, but you know, you can take any set of words and you can twist it how you want to. So um, you need to start with yourself and understand what all the words mean and understand what you're asking people to do before you ever can ask anyone else to change. I think especially as a leader. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and one of the premises of Mike's book that kind of goes, it's kind of counterintuitive, and I've heard him talk about this now a couple different times, it's really challenging me to examine myself, is that I think our assumption is that our beliefs determine our actions. And in many ways, that is true. But when you're talking about change, both on the individual basis and the team basis, organizational basis, to, to change the behaviors, you can't start with the beliefs. You got to start with the behaviors and the behaviors over time, then will change the beliefs and you'll start to show up the way you're acting. It's, and actually, that's a freeing thing to think about, because I have a lot more power over my actions than I do over my beliefs. Right. Because yeah. beliefs are systemic. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's funny. And some of the some of the questions I have, they're all, some are almost meant to be a little bit, you know, fun to use. But like one of my favorites is um, the question to ask is, what's your third best idea or what's our third best idea? And, and you can't just say, okay, we have, a, we have a problem here. Everyone, what's your third best idea? And they give it to you. It's like, no, what's the first one? Now give me the second one. It's got to be good. Now give me the third one. And by the time they get to the third one, they've, they've exhausted themselves the one they thought you wanted to hear. Then they've gone through the one that was easiest to make up after that. Now they actually have to think about it. And so it is a behavior to say, let's look at our third best ideas. Or it is a behavior to say, um, you know, whose voice is missing? Right. For we're making this decision as a group, we're moving forward. Who, who's missing? And you start to look at the composition of the group. It's like a lot of people may be missing, right? A lot of people of of, of, of different, you know, diverse backgrounds or people who have insight or people that have no idea what we're doing. I, I'll never forget doing work, and I know probably gonna wrap up soon, but doing work with a um, big oil and gas company. And we got like their top 50 leaders together from around the globe. And we had them do this exercise. They're all, they're all about digital transformation. So we had them do this exercise. We said, look, you're going to break into groups and you're now all the proud owners of a digital kindergarten. They go, what's that? I said, I don't know. You're going to make it up. But tell me what it's about. Tell me what you do. Tell me your products and all this stuff. If you don't think the technology is just, just make it up, it probably will one day. Well, they started up coming up with things. And I'll never forget one of them. What they came up with is, look, we're going to use these, these bands and things that, that monitor the, the child's hormones and we'll see if there's like um, cortisol, they're stressed, or or oxytocin, serotonin, they're feeling better. And we will use that and we'll use the cameras and the artificial intelligence tools to see what they're doing and to craft a different experience. And so down the street, that come, that kindergarten, they have great teachers and the best schools and the best food and the best facilities. We're going to scientifically guarantee your children 38% more joy in their day. Now, if you're a parent, you're going to that school, right? And sign me was, up, sign me up. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant innovation. And then we had a break for lunch. We had them go back and we had them do the same thing, look for innovations in their own business, their old gas business. And they sucked. They were horrible. They couldn't come up with anything new. And this really frustrated them. And we finally said, what's going on? And the reason was is because 
they knew nothing about kindergartens. No one in that room had a PhD in kindergartenology, right? They were just free to make stuff up and play. Got back to their business. They kept repeating things that they knew they knew that already documented this and that. They, they were too close to it. They were too smart. They knew too much about their business. And so what they realized, they actually had in some of their innovation times, they had to bring in people who knew nothing about the business, look at it from an entirely different angle in order to spur some different thoughts on. It was a really interesting moment for them to realize that the people who know the most about this are the worst people to be making the decisions by themselves. Wow. <laughs> That's remarkable. And yeah. you, you mentioned the word, you mentioned the word play. They were free to play with their ideas, with their imagination. Yeah. And th this ties right back into Peter Block's message to me, which is finally sinking in that it's in the play, it's in the creativity, it's in the innovation, it's in the music, it's in the art, where then people are free to express themselves and they'll come up with all this brilliant stuff that under the constraints of any other way, they won't. Well, what if art was part of your job, not just for art's sake, but for team building and for you know all the great benefits that Brene Brown would say is vulnerability. And I think art is, is in a sense that same, same concept. I think you're right. I mean, and there are there are jobs, you know, we all started for that a lot of re repetitive tasks that sometimes you do those without creativity, but more and more those are being done by machines, done, you know, yes. by, in some other way. One of our, our problems is our metrics for productivity are lost in the dark ages. They're Frederick Taylor. It's like, okay, you know, all the steps and we're measuring actions and believing it adds up to productivity. How about we measure the productive output <laughs> and then, you know, see where that's at whoa, and then go back whoa. and say, well, what caused that to happen? But, you know, we, we don't like that because it feels out of control. We've always been taught that we need to control and manage things. And so, you know, the, the great gift of the Industrial Revolution is also the great curse of the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, we're, we're in a very, very different age now. Um, but the shift is still taking longer than it should. But I do have hope because I see more of it, you know, changing, you know, uh, you know around me uh, every single day and I get to be involved in it. But, you know, we've still got a long way to go because there's a lot of organizations that just can't break out of the world. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating and wonderful discussion as I knew it would be. Uh, all of our conversations to me are enriching both for myself and for the conversations that I end up having as a result. So thank you, Michael, for your time. And, and I do encourage you, though, uh, if you're listening in, to check out The Heart of Transformation by Michael Leckie. It's, it is available on Amazon for pre-sale. It's not actually yes, yet. Get the MichaelLeckie.com there. Go to my website. You can see all about it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and we will have more discussions down the road, and, and eventually we will tell the story of the bus ride back to camp, which, which will be a podcast all into itself. Uh, God bless you, my friend. It's so good to connect with you, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Always a pleasure, Joe. Talk soon. Peace out. If this episode was beneficial to you, be sure to pay it forward, sharing it with others who may need a boost as well. Until next time, dream big, start small, act now. Thank you for tuning in.